can I add my welcome to Richard? Um, if you don't know me, it's very good to see you. My name is Phil Vance, and I'm a pastor here, but it's good to be together uh, this morning. Let's just pray and ask for God's help as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, we pray, as Niall was leading us earlier, that you would indeed sow this seed of your word deep into our hearts, that you would cause it to grow and to bear fruit in our lives, in lives of obedience, in lives of trust and dependence on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you wanted to stop the spread of the gospel, if you wanted to stop the spread of the gospel, which strategy should you go for? If you wanted to stop people from hearing and believing the good news about Jesus, what should you do? Um, there are, of course, plenty of options. And um, you could try locking up its spokespeople, uh, putting them behind bars. And you can see why you might go for that option. It's been a popular option uh, down through the centuries. You could go to, uh, you could go for that, locking up its spokespeople. Or you could try using intimidation, uh, using threatening language. Don't you know who I am? What on earth do you think you're doing? type approach and see how that goes. You could try going down more official routes and make it illegal to speak the gospel. And again, plenty of people down through the centuries have gone for that option. You could resort to violence against the go its, go its, spokes its spokespeople. Get your fists out, um, or if you don't quite fancy that, if that would make you feel uncomfortable, uh, you could get someone to do it for you. Those are just some of the options. But our question is, which option is going to be most effective in stopping the spread of the gospel? Well, here in Acts chapter 5, we're going to see the Sanhedrin, that is the, the, the group of religious Jewish leaders. We're going to see them try three of those strategies to try and stop the spread of the gospel. And we're going to see how effective each strategy is. So first, strategy, lock them up. Looking here at verses 12 to 25. See, ever since the day of Pentecost, the church has been on a great big roll. Uh, the apostles, were told in verse 12, are now performing loads of miracles. At the local people, verse 13, think the world of the church. They're really impressed by them. Like a snowball rolling down a hill, the church is getting bigger and bigger. We're told, verse 14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord. And in fact, the whole thing was causing congestion issues around Jerusalem, we're told. Uh, people were bringing their sick friends and neighbors uh, from neighboring towns and just lying them in the street in the hope that when Peter walked past, his, his shadow would fall on them. And we're told, verse 16, in that way, all those who were sick or tormented by impure spirits were healed. So it's amazing scenes here um, at the beginning of, of Acts chapter 5. But in verse 17, we're told that as the high priest and the Sadducees watched all of this, they weren't amazed, 
They weren't gobsmacked. They were filled with jealousy. In other words, they thought all of these crowds should be coming to hear us speak, not them. We should be the ones surrounded by crowds. They were jealous. And so what do they do? Well, they arrest the apostles and lock them up, verse 18. Last time it was just Peter and John they locked up. This time it is all 12 apostles. And you can kind of see why the Sanhedrin might reach for that option. How are the apostles going to teach the people the gospel if they're stuck behind bars? Surely this is going to work. But their strategy fails, and very quickly too. Because during the night, God sends his angel, who very simply opens up the doors of the cell and lets them go free and instructs the apostles to go back into the temple courts and to teach the people all about this new life. And at daybreak, that is exactly what the apostles do. So this Sanhedrin strategy, it fails catastrophically within no time at all. Like one of, I don't know if you've seen the footage of Elon Musk's space rockets. He's had plenty of them recently launching and about 10, 15, 20 seconds after launch, what inevitably happens, it just explodes. And he tries to play it off as, as some success. It is a failure. That is what we have here, a catastrophic failure in no time at all. But it doesn't just fail this strategy. It also leaves the Sanhedrin looking really rather stupid. Luke tells us what happens in the morning, and of how the high priest, unaware of what happened at night, uh, calls together the whole Sanhedrin so that they can try the apostles. And uh, Luke slows down at this point, and you can kind of imagine this scene as all of these religious leaders, full of pomp and ceremony, file into the courtroom and take their seats and feeling all very self-important, ready to lay into the apostles. And once everyone's settled, the high priest stands and says, bring the prisoners in. And nothing happens. And he says, bring the prisoners in. And nothing happens. And there's a a murmur in the room. What's what's going on? Where are they? What's going on? Five minutes of this turns into 10 minutes, turns into 15 minutes. It's very, very embarrassing. The officers then come back into the courtroom and they say, look, we, 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 they're not in their cells, sir. We, we went to their cells. We saw the guards outside. We saw the gates securely locked, but we went inside. They're not inside. Finally, someone comes into the room and says, it's okay, it's okay, we find them, we find, where are they? Oh, they're in the temple courts, sir, teaching the people about Jesus. It's brilliantly humiliating for the Sanhedrin. So if you're thinking about trying to stop the spread of the gospel by locking up its spokespeople, the lesson here from these verses is that it's just not going to work. And in fact, you may even end up with egg on your face too. 
Nevertheless, the Sanhedrin then try a different tactic. That doesn't work. So they try instead to put the fear of God into them. That is, they try to frighten them into silence. And so after having to re-arrest the apostles, the high priest puffs up his chest, puts on his biggest voice, and says to them, verse 28, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. In other words, he says, don't you realize how much you've disobeyed us? But this doesn't frighten the apostles at all. If anything, it actually encourages them. So he's trying to frighten them. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And the apostles hearing this must have been thinking, oh yeah, so we have. That's right. Just as Jesus promised we would. How brilliant, how encouraging. So again, the Sanhedrin just fails in its strategy. And in any case, you can't put the fear of God into someone who actually fears the one true living God. You can't frighten someone who really, rightly, delights and fears in God. The first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, um, if you've read that series, is The Magician's Nephew. It's kind of children's fantasy. And at the beginning of the story, that the children, uh, Diggory and, and Polly, they're really quite intimidated and frightened of Polly's Uncle Andrew. He's a kind of, he's a sinister, mean character. He bosses them around, and they tend to do what he says. But then they all go on an adventure into another world. And the children uh, see Aslan, the lion. He's the Christ figure in the story. And they see this lion, Aslan, sing Narnia into existence. And it's a beautiful scene as he sings and things just uh, spring up into existence. And then the children see the lion, Aslan, come close to them. And this is what Lewis, uh, how Lewis describes uh, this scene. He says, the lion passed by the children so close that they could have touched its mane. They were terribly afraid it would turn and look at them. And yet in some strange way, they wished it would. It's this picture of fear and delight mixed together. In other words, they come face to face with the maker and as they begin to spend time with Aslan, Uncle Andrew, who they've been so scared of, becomes less and less scary. And they begin to see him in perspective. Bigger than them, yes, okay. But next to Aslan, tiny. Nothing. And that, I think, is what's going on here with the apostles. <clears throat> Having witnessed the risen Jesus... And having seen Jesus in all of his glory and splendor, they're just not frightened by the Sanhedrin. You see it in their response. They don't apologize for what they've done. The apostles, they don't try to defend themselves. If anything, Peter goes on the front foot and preaches a mini-sermon to the to this Sanhedrin who are so angry with them, calling on them to repent. 
So again, what we're saying is that if you're thinking of trying to stop the spread of the gospel by frightening people into silence, again, it's just not going to work. And of course, countless men and women down through the centuries, countless men and women across the world today prove this time and time again. Well, with the Sanhedrin at this point 2-0 down when they were perhaps expecting to be 2-0 up, Gamaliel, the Pharisee, calls them together for a team talk. The apostles leave the room and he speaks to them. We're going to think about what he says in just a moment. But the Sanhedrin emerge from their team talk uh, intent on trying one last thing before calling it a day. Calling it a day. We see putting the fear of God into them doesn't work, so they try to beat them up. Verse 40. Uh, they called the apostles in and had them flogged, then ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Uh, they flogged the, them. That is, they stripped the apostles of their shirts and whipped their backs, each of them, 39 times. That's what they did. Um, and then you, again, you can understand why a kind of cruel, sadistic uh, leader might go for that option. Who is going to dare to speak the gospel after having their back whipped 39 times? And yet again, how do the apostles react? Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They're not happy that the skin on their backs has been shredded to pieces. Of course they're not. But to be treated in the same way as their hero Jesus was treated, well, for them, it's, it's, like, it's like receiving an MBE. It's, it's, it's a great honor. And so they leave the, the Sanhedrin and their trial, wincing in pain, absolutely, and yet at the same time, beaming with joy because of the honor of being associated with Jesus and more determined than ever to keep speaking about Jesus no matter what. Verse 42 is an amazing verse given what has just happened in this chapter. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And so as with all of these other strategies, beating them up is totally ineffective. If anything, it is actually counterproductive. And so what we're seeing here is that actually trying to stop the spread of the gospel, trying to stop people from hearing and believing in the good news about Jesus, well, it's like trying to stop an incoming tide by getting your bucket and spade out and, and making a line of sandcastles along the water's edge. Totally ineffective, a waste of time. But why? <clears throat> why is it that you can't stop the spread of the gospel? Well, the answer to that is because the gospel is from God. And quite simply, you can't stop God. This really is the heart of Gamaliel's 
team talk, if you like, to the Sanhedrin. Let me just read two verses from his speech, verse 38 and verse 39. He says to them, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. In other words, he says to them, when it comes to suppressing a man-made religious movement, all you need to do is kill its leader. Because when you've killed its leader, what tends to happen? The rest of the movement tends just to fizzle out by itself. Like, like a fire starved of oxygen. You don't need to go around stamping desperately to put it out. Just leave it. It'll go out by itself. And he gives a couple of examples from their history where that happens. And so Gamaliel says, well, look, with this Jesus movement, if it is man-made, well, we've already killed it. All we need to do is be a bit patient and wait because it'll fizzle out. But if it's from God, well, quite simply, you won't be able to stamp it out. Either way, the right approach is to let them go. I wonder what you make of Gamaliel's theory. In some ways, it's actually flawed because there are plenty of religious movements in the world today which have withstood the test of time, but which the Bible would say are not from God. So it is flawed. And yet at the same time, Gamaliel, there is much wisdom to what, to what he says. It comes from his hunch and his suspicion that actually this Jesus movement is being fueled by a higher power. And of course, as we know, his hunch is absolutely right. So what have we seen so far? We've seen that the spread of the gospel is unstoppable. Try as you may like. You will not be able to stop it, whatever you try. Why not? Because it is from God. And quite simply, you cannot stop God. How does this apply to us then? Well, let me just mention two things. Firstly, this increases and bolsters our confidence in the gospel. It reminds us that the gospel is from God and therefore is true. If you had a spectrum, a spectrum of how certain you are that the gospel is from God and therefore true, Perhaps over here, you've got uh, definitely not true. Over here, probably not true. Here, not sure. Uh, probably true. Definitely true. I wonder where you would put yourself on this spectrum. How certain are you that the gospel is true? Where would you put yourself on that spectrum? Luke is teaching us, actually, that we can put ourselves way up this end of the spectrum, that it is definitely true. Why? Because it's from God, as we have seen. Because clearly God has been the one orchestrating its spread, fighting its battles, overcoming its hurdles, and keeping it going against all the odds. One author puts it like this. 
He says, 2,000 years ago, a penniless preacher was slaughtered as a criminal and has been worshipped by billions. His movement is the largest, most diverse, most inclusive sociological phenomenon the world has ever seen. It has been growing since the first century till now and has transformed the world unimaginably. And what that author says there isn't kind of Christian propaganda and hyping things up a bit. Those actually are facts. Christianity has completely transformed the world. Not everyone believes in Christianity, but it has had an amazing impact all over the world and down through the centuries. Despite the most severe persecution and the most draconian measures at points, no one has been able to stop its spread. Why not? Because it's from God. And because it's from God, we can have total confidence it is true. And for us, that means we can really trust this gospel. It means that we can be sure that Jesus really is the Son of God. We don't need to harbor any doubts. We can be sure that if we've repented and trusted in Christ, we are forgiven. We, we don't need to worry about that. We have been forgiven. We can be sure that we really are heading for eternal life. It really is true that Jesus really is coming back, that we don't need to desperately hold on to this life or to fear that it's the only one we've got, but can live for the next life. We can be really sure that this gospel is true because it's from God. He has shown it to be from him in overcoming all hurdles to its spread. And I guess I would say if you're not yet sure that this gospel message is from God, maybe the question to think about is, well, what's your theory? What's your explanation for why this message has overcome all of these hurdles and spread and spread so unstoppably? Those are facts that need an explanation. What's your theory for why it's happened? So this gives us real confidence in the gospel. Secondly, and finally, it encourages us to keep obeying God, not man. And we're thinking here about the apostles' example to us. Verse 28, they say to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than human beings. And it's not the first time we've heard them say this in the book of Acts either. In other words, these apostles recognize who's in charge. In sport, uh, there's often a, an interesting dynamic between spectators and the coach. Uh, so if you've been at a football game or a rugby game you, and you've stood in the stand, you know what it's like how spectators have this tendency to bark instructions at the team. You know, Keep it tight. Stop passing it around, you know. Defend better. Why did you pass it? Keep hold of the ball. But of course, they're not in charge. The coach is in charge. And he's given the players very different instructions. Play expansively. Pass it around. Try things. Go for it. So when the players on the pitch hear the spectators barking their instructions, keep it tight, don't pass it, what are they to do? Obey them, listen to them, 
ask them, oh, wh what was that instruction again? It's tell it to me again. Okay, I'll try that next time. No. They respectfully ignore the spectators because they're not in charge. The coach is in charge. Well, when it comes to the Christian life, there are plenty of spectators, if you like, who would love to boss us around. Sometimes authorities, sometimes powerful people, sometimes influential people, shouting from the stands. You can't share the gospel. We live in a plural society. You can't be saying things like that. Be nice, be kind, do all that type of thing, but just keep your mouth shut. What should we do when we hear their instructions? Listen to them, ask them to tell us more and to... No, we respectfully ignore them because they're not in charge. And instead, we're to play the game as God has instructed us to. He's the one in charge. He is the one who's told us to share the gospel. And so that's what we're to do. Verse 28, the apostles say, an example to us, we must obey God rather than human beings. Let's pray for courage that we too might keep sharing the gospel no matter what. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great confidence and certainty that we can have that this gospel message is from you and that it is therefore true. We thank you that we can have confidence that if trusting in Christ, our sins are forgiven. We are heading for eternal life, that Jesus will return, that he is the Son of God. Please, Lord, would you, uh, would you impress this word into our hearts that we might grow in certainty and confidence. And we pray, too, that you would give us something of the courage that these apostles had, uh, that we would obey you first and foremost above anyone else, and that, crucially, we may uh, speak the gospel carefully, uh, sensitively, winsomely, but also clearly and boldly. Give us courage to do that in obedience to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.